0: This is Winning Slowly, taking a long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. Because doing good work takes time. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And this is going to be the weirdest episode of Winning Slowly ever. And by ever, we really kind of mean just this season. But definitely this season.
1: But definitely this season. Instead of talking about one topic, we're going to talk about Five. five. Very quickly. <laughs> we're reaching the end of the season. This is the first part of our two-part finale, and we had some things that we had at the bottom of the list that we said, you know, I don't really want to dedicate a whole episode to that, but I do want to talk about it. It's bigger than a before-you-go. It's smaller than a full episode. Let's just throw them all together into an episode. So we're going to do that. And because there are some things that Chris cares about more than I care about and vice versa, as you probably have discerned via listening to our show. We're going to give one or the other of us the lead on all but one of them. So, we'll start with that one that we each care equally about, which is the role of venture capital in startups. Chris?
0: Stephen described our basic take on this earlier by saying, we're going to have to try really hard not to just go all Hulk on it, and that's pretty close to true. Yeah. Venture capital, in principle, could be a good thing, and in general, capital investments we think can be good things. In particular, they provide much-needed funding so that you can actually do something before you get revenue, because when you're building a product for the first time, you don't have revenue until you can market something to customers and you have to have time to build it and so on, and so capital, yeah, it can be a really good and useful and helpful thing. But venture capitalism, in the shape it has taken over the last several decades and focused on Silicon Valley in particular, has become increasingly divorced from that original ideal of helping reasonable-sized companies come to reasonable business models that are sustainable in the long term, and, like many things in our economy, has come instead to be focused entirely, not just partly, which would be fine and reasonable. But entirely on the massive product, the quote-unquote unicorn, the thing that makes a billion bucks.
1: Well, though no, the thing that's valued at a billion dollars, <laughs> which is extremely <laughs> different than making a billion dollars. In fact, extremely different. And that's part of the problem is that there are venture capital companies and angel investors and IPO investors. All of these people are at fault, but particularly venture capitalists who will throw money at something that seems like a good idea but has no proof no business plan. that it will actually succeed. And yes, Uber succeeded slash is succeeding slash might succeed, depending on how you think about their business model. <laughs> and yeah. everybody wants to find the next Uber, which is funny because Uber isn't even Uber yet. It's only a valuation and it's only a expectation of being Uber, which is the problem with the whole system is that By running up these companies to intense valuations, there's one that hit a $10 billion valuation before they could even show that they were in the black, essentially. This is absurd. Just totally absurd. There's no reason for this. And it's going to create a tech bubble. We already are in a tech bubble, but it's going to create an even worse pop when the tech bubble does burst. It will, because it always does. It's going to happen, and it's going to be VC's fault, 100%. Not anybody else, just venture
0: capitalists. And the thing with it is, like we said a moment ago, it doesn't have to play this way. And there's no particular reason why capital investment should focus primarily on these crazy long shot could be worth a million dollars. Now, it's easy to see why. Yeah, billion Because if they IPO and make lots of money and you sell your share in it, etc., you come out with lots and lots of money. So sure, we get that. But as we've said all season, just getting lots and lots of money is not necessarily great in and of itself. And when you're just getting lots and lots of money in a way that ultimately provides perverse incentives to an entire sector of the economy and an increasingly important sector of the economy at that, we say, lame, stop it. Go home. Invest sensibly, sanely. Stop doing this because we're grumpy like that, adventure capitalists.
1: Yeah, it's just unsustainable. It's untenable. It just can't work. And if we don't stop doing this sort of manic, fear of missing out investment in long tail moonshots, it's going to be really, really bad for the economy. And we're only two dudes in a podcast, but. If we can figure this out, everybody should be able to figure this out. This is not good. This is going to go poorly. This is what 1999 looked like in the internet. This is not good.
0: We recognize that things are not exactly the same today as they were in 1999 and so on, but the big commonalities are there. People pouring in gobs of money at ideas that are basically something. With a something. Then it was something with software. Now it's Uber for X. Uber for anything. Yeah. Uber for your mom's hairstyle. I mean it's just there's no sanity or traction underneath it. And there's no cleared balances or checks on it to prevent it from going out of control. Right. And that's why it's going out of control. Right. So
1: everybody needs some self control. Go get some. It's valued pretty highly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the uh, the return on investment for self-control is very, very high. Yeah. It's long-term. You'll win slowly, but it's a high reward. So, Stephen, yeah. something you want to talk about that I kind of felt meh about was online classes.
1: Yeah, so I teach online classes sometimes. I've taught one, and I'm probably going to be teaching more this upcoming summer. And they do a lot of different things. People think that they are a panacea, some people think they are the ultimate evil, some people think that they are a necessary evil, some people think that they're an inevitable thing. There's just a lot of stuff floating out in the ether, and then you throw mooks on top of it, and then you've got this sort of roiling chasm of deep anguish and (laughs) angst that also has some admonitions of great things thrown on top of it for good measure, and that's, that's what you have with online classes. And so (laughs) from the experience of teaching them, I can say that there are some things that should never be taught online. And there are some things that are actually kind of better when you teach them online because they don't really need the same sorts of in-class interactions that the traditional classroom-based model of higher education requires. There are things that are just facts. If you're teaching vocabulary, I have a friend who teaches a Greek and Latin vocabulary class online says it works great. I teach business writing online. This is not rocket science. It's just stuff that people don't know. It doesn't require a whole lot of in-class discussion of students. So I think in some cases, they work great. In other cases, where you need the interaction between the students and the professors, and there's a lot of perhaps information that needs to be taken in on the level of a microbiology course or organic chemistry course, or if there's something that requires a whole lot of development of a thought pattern, so philosophy courses or religious courses or any number of things where you're developing a train of thought. That stuff needs to be done in person or it needs to be in a different forum than what is the traditional online class model, which is lectures taped with supplementary readings and discussion forums as the center of interaction between the students.
0: Yeah, I've never taught one of these, but I have taken online classes dating all the way back to high school, and I've taken math classes online, I have taken theology classes online, I have taken therefore kind of across that whole spectrum, and when Stephen said Greek and Latin, my first thought was, oh, because the thought of trying to take a language class online sounds like something of a nightmare to me. But then he said vocabulary, and I thought, well, okay, I I can see how that would work. But I can say from experience that math is really hard to do well online, and something like theology is nearly impossible. I mean, you can get some content out of the lecture, but there's more to learning many of these disciplines than just getting some content. And so, number one, you have that. Is the point of a college education merely to deliver information, or is there a formative aspect to it? And I think the best kinds of college degrees are formative. And so for me, I'm not a huge fan of the online only education, though I can see value to it for some people in some circumstances, especially as compared to not being able to get one at all. Yeah. But one of the other things that really gets me a bit grumpy at the online education movement is the idea that well, these kids today, they just love being on their computers, so online education's going to be a good thing, and they'll be more engaged. Well, no. Kids these days, and by kids these days, we mostly mean everybody these days, <laughs> but people use the internet, etc., to connect with each other, to socialize, to play, and yes, to some extent, for people who are particularly self-motivated to learn. But people have done that with reading and writing in the past, Basically, you shouldn't expect that connectivity and interactivity is going to be higher online than in person. Anyone who's been around students knows that student interactivity isn't necessarily all that high in the classroom, unless you've got an exceptional prof and probably also a fairly motivated group of students.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Putting up further barriers, you know, like a screen and having to chat or post on a forum— was never, ever going to be an automatic boost to engagement in the classroom. Sorry, guys.
1: And I think there's a potential problem in what you left out, what people do online, which is work. Mm -hmm. And so when professors think about online courses or administrators think about online courses, they're like, well, people work online, so, you know, you're just going to work online. Students will work online. This makes perfect sense. (laughs) And, yeah, in that logic it does, but... (laughs) Outside of that logic, which is reductionist at best, there's just a whole big variation between what it means to work as a student, what it means to work online as a student, what it means to be online as a student, engaged in one thing or another thing. And so for some students, it works out great. They teach students that are overseas for a summer or that are doing internships that have them working. Reverse hours, so they're awake when everybody else is asleep and stuff like that. works out great for them. They're able to get information that they need. They're able to learn stuff. And again, because I teach business writing, this is not a course that's made up of rocket science. This is stuff that is extremely important, underutilized, underknown, but really doesn't take me sitting in front of a classroom and lecturing to get the basics out of it. Especially if you're doing a five-week course, which a lot of summer courses are, a lot of online courses are shortened, you're not really going for the amount of depth that you would have standing in front of a classroom anyway. That's optimistically the goal, but in reality, that's just impossible. You can't. Um, And the condensed amount of time reflects on the condensed schedule and the condensed syllabi and the condensed amount of time you have for assignments it's just it's all condensed and so therefore expecting that you'd have more as opposed to condensed amount of interest and integration in the classroom is a little bit past where people are really taking the online experience so i think that ultimately they're not evil they're not amazing all the time they are another tool in the university's Toolbox, And I think that when you start trying to implement them as cost-saving measures, you're really doing a disservice to the idea of what a class should be, unless it's a class that really works well online, and there is a difference. Mm
0: -hmm. As usual, context matters, and things that work well for one particular thing don't necessarily work well for everything else. Right. So the next thing that I'm not particularly interested in, but Chris (laughs) is
1: all about, is... The ethics of algorithms. And we touched on this briefly this season, but because I was less interested, we didn't go into depth
0: with it. Hmm. Let me sum up and then elaborate. I'll sum up by simply saying, just because an algorithm was involved doesn't mean you're absolved. We still have responsibility over the things we do online and with our machines, and There are lots of algorithms shaping lots of things about our lives now, from algorithms that plan routes and maybe make it easier not to have to think about a map traveling somewhere, right down to algorithms that suggest movies you might be interested on Netflix, all over across to algorithms that think, oh hey, you probably need more shaving cream if you ordered from Harry's, which is a thing that happened to me a few months ago, and scarily enough, was totally accurate within a matter of days. <laughs> I was thinking, I need to order more shaving cream. And they sent me an email and said, hey, our algorithm thinks you might need more shaving cream. And I, 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 Ye- yes, yes, I do. And <laughs> And so on the one hand, those kinds of things can be great. They can be really convenient. They can be really helpful for us. On the other hand, those things have consequences and costs. And algorithms are created by humans. I create no small number of them myself in my day job as a programmer, and algorithms therefore express the intention and agency of humans. One of the points Alan Jacobs made in his Theses for Disputation, which we talked about last season, is that it is tempting to ascribe agency and motive to machines, to talk about what algorithms want, about what technologies want in general, and the problem with that, as he highlighted in those theses, and as we've mentioned from time to time, is what I just said. Algorithms express human desires and will. Now maybe they express them more or less perfectly, and the ways which they express them imperfectly can lead to all sorts of unintended effects and consequences, but at the end of the day we're responsible for those as well because we are the creators of these things, and one of the things I think we need to do a lot more of culturally is owning that responsibility of not just saying, ah, well, that's just what my social media shows me. Well, choose your social media better and choose to (laughs) put in and take out different signals from it. We talked a bit about how clicking like on certain things on Facebook, if you're a Facebook user, is going to have certain repercussions for you. Which, as a result, means that I see basically only baby pictures in my newsfeed anymore because that's all I click on on Facebook. Right. But if you tell Facebook over and over again that you really like this article by populist liberal or populist conservatives who are slamming on people on the other side of the political fence and wouldn't know a nuanced argument sensitive to the difficulties and open to compromise if it hit them over the head— Well, that's all you're going to see, and the more you do that, the more you feed certain tendencies in yourself as a person, and that's significant, and that matters, and you're driving that. Now, at the same time, the people who write those algorithms at Facebook, while motivated in some ways to do that by their bottom line, by the incentive of getting you to come back in and get that little shot of adrenaline to your brain as something fires you up, and therefore to get you seeing more of their ads, they're creating a system which makes that much likelier and thereby contributes, not insignificantly, I would argue, to the ongoing polarization and lack of ability to dialogue sophisticatedly and meaningfully and openly and honestly about important things without it devolving into that kind of punching each other in the face hate blogging that is very much in vogue. Yeah. So the purveyors and creators of these algorithms have responsibility as well.
1: And this is another one where it's like, yep, we're two guys in a podcast (laughs) telling you what you should do. You should do this. (laughs) There's also an element where things like Solid Gold Bomb, the controversy about the Keep Calm and Rape On shirt that was created by an algorithm. And they said, well, we didn't actually make it and none of these shirts were printed. Like... It was just an algorithmic blip well that's true you didn't make that shirt in any sense but you didn't not make that shirt in that the only reason that shirt even constitutes a possibility is because your algorithm made it possible Mm -hmm. and so the difficulty of algorithmic ethics is that if you don't carefully plan your algorithm to exclude things that you don't want to happen or things that could be potentially difficult or dangerous, then you are liable for things that you didn't expect. You have to do so much for planning Mm -hmm. when you're thinking about an algorithm so that it doesn't do things that you don't want it to do. And that's a place where I would like to see people get more involved is when they are planning algorithms. They are taking those safeguards and making sure that things that they don't want to happen don't happen so that they don't have to say, well, we – we just didn't expect that it would do that. Well, that's not a good defense anymore.
0: <laughs> no, you need to think about these things up front. And if there's no good way to prevent that from happening with your current you approach. You that algorithm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We need to be willing instead of just saying, and this has been a perennial theme this season, well, we can do this and probably bad things won't happen, to say, if these bad things are likely to happen, and we cannot see a good way to prevent them. Maybe we should take a step back and question whether we should be doing this at all. Yep. Now, to turn the tables back around again, Stephen, you brought up the idea of tracking people at work and what there is to say about that.
1: This was one of the topics that we initially pondered for the beginning of the season and didn't get around to because I couldn't get Chris sufficiently interested in it. There were a spate of articles a couple months ago That were interested in how work metrics are being used, how people are being tracked in their workplaces. This goes from things like Walmart, where people are being tracked on the floor to see how efficient they're being, and all the way up to white collar workers that are being surveilled on their computers and seeing what they're doing and making sure that they're not "quote unquote" wasting time. And this is a draconian and Orwellian. And we should hate this in just prima facie. We should hate the idea that when you go to work, you lose all of your constitutional rights. This is absurd. Yeah. And then, B, being constantly tracked makes an assumption that working constantly is the best way to be productive. This is just not true. Wrong. It's just not true. Everybody who does research on work knows that you can't just sit in front of an anything for any amount of time and be more productive at that thing. I don't care whether it's a factory line or a computer or a yard you're mowing, whatever it is, you can't just do something straight for eight hours. You can't. You lose productivity somewhere in the middle. You just do. If you don't rest, if you don't take a small break, if you don't do something, Your brain, your body, they just start to revolt. We're not meant to be doing that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and we touched on this in our episode on Amazon and the way the company treats its white-collar workers, but then also especially its blue-collar workers. But Amazon is very much far from alone, and the story that brought this to our attention originally, I think was, as you said, about Walmart. It was about Walmart workers being tracked constantly throughout their day as they walk around, etc. And there's this fetishization of productivity in our culture that's just profoundly unhealthy and unhelpful. And I think when we start to think that every second when you're not being productive is a second wasted and thrown away and meaningless, well, we're really reducing people to their means of production. And while there are lots of things I disagree with in Marx. That starts to sound an awful lot like a version of capitalism to which his critiques does speak powerfully, even if the solutions he proposed might not be so great. People are and must be more than the means of production, or we've gotten everything all sorts of backwards. Chris
1: Kreitcho on Karl Marx, everybody. Chris Kreitcho.
0: <laughs> Don't call me a Marxist. I'm really not.
1: <laughs> I just I just wanted to call out that one and only time I think that's going to happen. <laughs> probably in my entire life yes that's pretty rad yeah and that's basically all i have to say about that is that this sucks don't do it that's part of the reason that we didn't do this as a full episode is because that's the whole <laughs> thing don't do it don't track people it's it's ridiculous it's reductive it's not productive and the more that you say that this is how you be productive the less it actually works.
0: The more you tighten your grip, the more star systems will slip through your fingers, or something to that effect. Or
1: something like that, yeah. I think that's that's it. (laughs) And so finally, the last of the topics I'll spin towards Chris is this idea of transparency in business models.
0: Yeah, so I was talking with a friend who was looking at starting a small business, looking at starting a coffee shop, actually. And one of the things this friend was thinking through is... What would it be like if we just posted straight up on our signs, here's what it costs us to make this. Here's the cost of the coffee. Here's the cost of the labor. Here's the cost of the equipment amortized over time so that customers could see, look, here's here's the profit we're making. Here's what we're charging you to just make the coffee. And then here's our profit. And this sounds like the nerdiest coffee shop of all time, and I love it. <laughs> this friend is almost as nerdy. Amortization! As... <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if this friend used that word, but this friend is almost as nerdy as I am, and that takes some doing. So <laughs> the idea then of saying, here's what this exchange really means. Here's what I'm asking you to chip in in terms of profit, and here's what I think this experience is worth beyond just the basic labor cost of getting it to you. And while I don't necessarily have a strong, yes, you should do that, or no, that's a stupid idea, response to this, I thought it was interesting and it was worth pondering what happens when we do introduce that kind of transparency. I've seen a couple blogs online that now do that. They post all of their revenue from that blog so that people can see. What do you make off of your sponsors? What do you make off of ads on the site? What do you make from people clicking Amazon links on your site, etc.? And that's just an interesting way to say, hey, I'm making a business out of this thing, and I recognize that you're giving something to me by giving your attention, and here's what it is. A few weeks ago, Stephen and I were talking about the ethical responsibilities of big companies, Apple at the Mm -hmm. fore of them, And the question of Apple's profit margins and all of that, especially because, as happens perennially, someone came out with an estimate of the cost of manufacturing an iPhone. And that cost is, of course, hundreds of dollars lower than the cost of an iPhone when you buy it at the store. And we got into an interesting Mm -hmm. and pretty long discussion about, A, the relationship between doing some moral goods and still being able to do more, and therefore needing to continue to hold companies to higher standards, but also applauding what mm-hmm. they're doing well. But the other takeaway from this is to say one of the ways Apple could diffuse some of these criticisms is by being less insanely secretive about its profits. Now, I understand that that cuts against the grain, and also to be fair, they are not the worst about that in the tech industry. Amazon is far worse in that they just don't tell you anything about what they're doing.
1: Well, that's because they don't make <laughs> any money. So
0: Yeah, can't... They have nothing to report. Can't report that. But... <laughs> <laughs> the The bigger, broader issue for me was just thinking, you know, it, and I agree with many of Stephen's critiques of Apple there, and I do think Apple could do better, but the amount of profit they make is certainly less than the amount that these reports tend to suggest because these reports are just assembly. They don't and can't include things like research and development costs and the costs of writing and then supporting the software and the costs of running a genius bar and all of the other things that go in their Apple stores, which certainly aren't just supported by accessory sales, etc. And all of those things, having more transparency about them could ameliorate some of the criticism that Apple receives, but it could also make for a healthier discussion about Apple's profit margins and saying, hmm, are there ways in which you could do better with this Apple? Yes, maybe there are. Let's talk about them.
1: Yeah, but being non-transparent allows them to not have that conversation. Mm -hmm. So people like me who are like, rah, 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 don't have the ability to go rah, 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 and have everybody else agree. (laughs) Oh, yeah, they really should be doing better. So then they just get to keep the small vocal but small minority saying, you should do better because you have lots of money. Mm -hmm. So I think transparency is a good thing. I think everybody should do it. I think there'll be less embezzling that way, but
0: (laughs) I do. I think that's one of the things you get with transparency. I agree. It was just a a turn I did not expect. Turns you don't expect winning slowly. That's right.
1: And that's that. That's our our episode. And there's not really a before you go because that the whole thing was kind of a before (laughs) you go. Because this is, as I said at the beginning, the first of our two part finale. For the season, we are committed to doing season lengths that don't burn us out. Mm -hmm. We really like this show. We like that other people like it, and we want to keep it running for a really long time. So we take breaks.
0: Instead of burning ourselves out, we quit while we're ahead. And by quit, I don't mean quit. I mean take a break, catch our breath, plan some things out, and come back at it again when we're fresh and have some new things to do. Mm -hmm.
1: Music this week was Run With Me by Heather LaRose. We
0: used it with permission. Please don't use it without her permission. Thanks to Jeremy W. Sherman for sponsoring the show this month. You can find the full list of sponsors as well as links to things we mentioned in the show in the show notes, which are available at winningslowly.org slash 3.14. You can sponsor us yourself by pledging monthly at patreon.com slash winningslowly or giving directly at cash.me slash dollar sign winningslowly. We give 10% of that to the Internet Archive to help preserve the history of the interwebs. You can
1: subscribe to the show in iTunes or on your favorite podcast app and if you like the show, would you do us
0: a favor and rate and review us on iTunes? That really helps. You can also follow us on Twitter or app.net at winningslowly or subscribe to our Facebook page. We would love to hear from you those places and we'll post fun exciting news there over the coming months. We'd also love to hear from you at hello at winningslowly.org. And as always, thanks for listening. the music this week the Alan Jacobs made in the how many how many theses was that (laughs) Mm -hmm. 72 something
1: something Um, Uh, in his theses yes